Kia ora. Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Can I just say that we have had such a response regarding swing bridges and your, we have a nation that is in fear of crossing swing bridges. So we might come to that. We'll uh, get uh, in some feedback on that. Uh, if you hadn't heard Raven Cairns, I've been thinking... He can't take a swing bridge. But yesterday in the TVNZ minor party debate last night, many issues canvassed, much familiar territory. One issue was not. The leaders were asked a quick question about where they stood on white-collar crime. Not a lot was said, but in a campaign with every cost scenario scrutinised, what about white-collar crime? How much could we get? Well, welfare fraud has a $26 million price tag annually, Tax avoidance, up to 5 to $7 billion. That's every year. Well, on TVNZ Plus, there is a film that was made last year. It's called Need Versus Greed, The True Cost of White-Collar Crime by investigator Tim McKinnell, who joins us now. Kia ora, Tim. Kia ora, Wallace. So it's not a topic on the trail, but a campaign trail, but it was discussed in brief last night. You've looked at a variety of white-collar crimes what are the main ones? Well, fraud and deception are sort of the the, the leading crimes. There's uh, there's all sorts of ways you can commit fraud, um, and it's only really limited by the imagination. Um, I guess in in recent years we've also seen a an, an exponential increase in cybercrime type fraud as well. So there's there's a range of ways it can be done, and it's a, it's a crime type that, uh, we don't talk about often, um, but it is in fact um, the, the largest crime type in this country. And I was on that, I was looking at the figures, you know, you, you have an estimate, this is Professor Lisa Marriott's figures, who's a tax taxation professor, an estimated five to seven billion every year. I was thinking, imagine if you could claw just some of that back into the government's coffers. That's exactly right. Um, uh, all the good that you could do with that money, um, and and all the harm you could limit. Um, that that is a huge amount of um, money, and um, and you know one of the things that we sometimes forget about when we talk about crime is is harm and how communities are are affected by it, and and, and fraud is uh, is is bad. It's not it's not blood and broken bones, but it's a different type of uh, different type of harm, and it um, and it hurts people people and families deeply. Tim, we have a panel with us, of course, um, Sally Winley. Tim, how do you think it can be prevented? Yeah, good good question. Um, interestingly, the IPCA looked at fraud, uh, the Independent Police Complaints Authority, looked at fraud authority, uh, looked at fraud last year, and they looked at the police response to it. So one of the issues we have is we've got um, a, a multitude of uh, government agencies that play some role in detection and prosecution of fraud. Um, so you've got the police, the ECFO, uh, Commerce Commission, Financial Markets Authority. And so with so many different agencies looking at different parts of the fraud landscape, there are gaps. And I think there's a pretty strong argument that, uh, that there needs to be some collective action and coordination to try and close some of those gaps. And Lisa Marriott, the professor of taxation, she's quoted as saying, we spent $49 million, um, in the last year investigating benefit fraudsters and they don't have any resources like that for the Serious Fraud Office or the Financial Markets Authority. Um, how, how much um, more of a role do you feel whatever government the next one is could have to increase the finances to help the Serious Fraud Office or the FMA 
investigate to try and prevent it? Yeah, I think there's a, a fantastic opportunity for those uh, those parties, those politicians that keep talking about um, being uh, tough on crime. Uh, we know that there's a certain type of crime they like to talk about, and there's another type of crime, fraud and deception type offences, that don't get spoken about so much. I think if if they were to be resourced, um, the return on investment would be enormous in terms of the reduction of uh, of fraud, and then that that money circulates back into the economy uh, legitimately and and can can go to good as as Wallace touched on earlier. Uh, Raven, hey, so Tim, do you think it's that um, it's easier to go after benefit fraud because they're low hanging fruit and people who are, who are doing that can't don't have the resources to fight back, but people who are into big time tax evasion they can afford to fight back. Can and do, yeah, that's absolutely part of it, and. You know, it, it, it's very much over the years been a low-hanging uh, fruit type approach. Um, MSD, to their credit, have made some adjust adjustments in recent years in terms of the way they're looking to um, to deal with overpayments. It's not necessarily fraud, um, but the, it's undoubtedly true that uh, that serious fraud it can be incredibly complex, time-consuming, and resource-intensive to investigate. And and if you look at the the SFO, there's only a handful of prosecutions taken each, each year. And we, we know that fraud is a, a far greater issue than, than the handful of prosecutions that the SFO are able to deal with. Tim, when it comes to um, the courts and being treated differently by the courts, are white and blue collar crimes treated quite differently? Yeah, they are. And we've talked about already Lisa Marriott and the work that she's done. She's done some comparative analysis analysis on this and it's undoubtedly true that um, that those crimes that are often motivated by um, by need uh, are treated more harshly by the courts and by the system uh, than than the white collar crimes that uh, that are, tend to be committed by those in the business community and white collar crimes um, they can get some of them can get immunity or there's a bit of leniency isn't there it's it sounds like there's a one rule for some another rule for others and it's quite That's confusing right. to me as a layperson what what's your interpretation that's absolutely true. There's, there, there are, we spoke about them in, in the documentary, um, sort of off-ramps that exist for, for complex fraud because there are risks in prosecuting complex fraud. And so often if money is repaid and remedy is made, uh, there's an opportunity to avoid uh, prison, for example, and or, um, and or a criminal prosecution at all. Um, and 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 that's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but in the past it hasn't been an opportunity that's afforded to people uh, that have been caught um, stealing when they're on the benefit, for example. So here's a here's a, um, a question st uh, from Steve Tim. Thoughts on the, have you conflated the questions of tax avoidance and fraud? Fraud is illegal, but may not generate increased government revenue. Tax avoidance is not a crime, is it? Certainly tax evasion is illegal and should be chased down. Thoughts, Tim? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, there is a, a difference between uh, criminal liability and, and avoiding tax legitimately. And uh, and you do have to be careful when you're talking about uh, the two. Um, you've got offshoring as an example of a legitimate tax avoidance uh, 
uh, approach and you know whether that is morally and ethically right uh, that's up to individuals and, and groups to talk about but I think um, that there is some pretty plain and obvious tax rule that goes on. And, and on uh, that, just finally, and, Tim, um, considering we're in an election year and every uh, cost item, every line item is absolutely scrutinised, do you think it's fair or worthy of parties to actually give a bit more time to this topic? I wish they would. I wish when we talked about tough on crime, we talked about white collar crime and family harm rather than uh, gangs and drugs. Uh, there's uh, there's a great deal more harm, in my view, uh, in the community as a result of um, fraud and family harm type incidents than there is than there is uh, some of those other types of crimes. Tim McKinnell, kia ora. Oh, by the way, the, the need versus greed that's still up on TV NZ Plus. Is that right? It is. It's still up and um, and it's still getting views. So that's that's good news. Very good. Uh, that's Tim McConnell, the investigator who was behind uh, a film. It's called Need versus Greed. A couple of uh, texts here earlier just said, yeah, it's a it's a good watch. So if you're interested in the issue, you can go and uh, check it out. 17 past for the panel uh, and to this. How many lives did New Zealand's COVID 19 pandemic restrictions save. Well, a figure has been put on it. That's 20,000. That from a report in the New Zealand Medical Journal today. There's been a lot of talk about whether our lockdown measures were worth it. What do you think? More than 3,000 Kiwis have died from COVID-19. In the US, COVID killed 1.13 million, far more than the 675,000 people who died there from the influenza panic just after World War I. Now, 16 of New Zealand's leading doctors and scientists are calling for a respiratory infectious disease mitigation strategy. So with us is Professor Michael Plank from the University of Canterbury. Professor Plank, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, 20,000. That's a lot of people. How has this figure arrived at? Um, yeah, so this, I mean, it's really a ballpark figure, um, just sort of comparing, you know, looking back over the course of the pandemic and comparing, uh, you know, where, we, where we've ended up in New Zealand compared to, to other sort of comparable countries um, like the UK and, and the US. And it's very, very clear um, that New Zealand has had one of the lowest pandemic death rates in the world and uh, places like the UK and the US have had uh, more than five times the number of deaths that, that we've had here in, in New Zealand. Now, Professor Plank, I this is an anecdote and this relates to the story. I had uh, a guy at the gym yesterday or the day before who yelled at me, basically. He said, we went through three years of hell and all for what? And Michael Baker this morning said, you have an expression in public health, that public health triumph is when nothing happened. Is that accurate? Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's, that's right. You can't see what you can't see. Um, and, of course, those restrictions, the lockdowns and the border closures that we had, they were hell. They were, you know, incredibly damaging and disruptive um, for people. But it's important to remember that um, other countries suffered through that sort of um, time as well. And, uh, you know, most countries around the world have had uh, lockdowns and, and restrictions. And in many cases, they had them actually for a lot longer uh, than we did here in New Zealand. But they still suffered that much higher death toll. And despite um, New Zealand's 
alleged success with the virus. How could we be better prepared? What could we have done differently? Um, well, I think um, you know, there are, with the benefit of hindsight, there are, you can go through and, and pick out things that we could do differently. And um, I'm pleased to see that the Royal Commission um, is happening at the moment, and, and hopefully, we'll get some, uh, you know, some clear directions from uh, from the Royal Commission when they report their findings, uh, because I think it is important to take you know a really detailed look and, and think about what we can learn. Um, for the, the next pandemic. But, I mean, one thing that I think is clear is that, you know, the system has been, it was operating in emergency mode for more than three years, and it took an incredible strain on healthcare workers and scientists doing the testing and the genome sequencing and so on. So we really need to invest uh, in these systems, invest in science, research, and, and public health in the long term so that we are prepared for the next public health emergency or pandemic. Raven. Oh, yeah. Well, I just think it's that that whole thing about um, it, it's been a, a, a revelation about how human emotions work. Like um, everyone, everyone notices or, or remembers the inconvenience of our own lockdown, but, you know, didn't really notice the freezer trucks of bodies in New York, their morgues were full or the NHS people getting applauded every day for showing up and risking their lives and actually dying. And, you know, it was it's so um, strange the way we. Yeah, those people were able to just stay angry about um, our own inconvenience, and that that and then that of course led to the whole you know the anti-vax and and conspiracy theory movement, which has now you know permeated politics. And so, um, what can you do? It's just like there are some people who will. It's it's hard to do the right thing for people because they won't appreciate. Uh, and stay and 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 hold on to gratitude for what's been done for them. Yeah, I think there's 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 definitely an element of truth um, to that. I mean, I think in New Zealand we're a small country, but we're actually a very highly connected population internationally. You know, there's a lot of New Zealanders overseas, and a lot of New Zealanders have family overseas. So I think I still remember seeing those pictures of of makeshift morgues in Central Park in New York and the, and the scenes from Italy with hospitals overflowing. And that did really make it very real. Um, you know, it was very clear that that was going to come here unless we did something about it. So, yeah, it's, there's an element of, you know, it's, a, it's an arm's reach. You can't see what you can't see. And, and you sort of um, just remember the bad parts. But I think probably most New Zealanders do um, realise that what we did was necessary, and it did save a lot of lives. Professor Plank, let me ask you this question. I don't want to sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a I hate to say it because it's a Friday and it's power ballot Friday, but let me ask you this. <laughs> um, if this happens again, and we all hope it doesn't, if this happens again in 10 years and 12 years and 20 years, are we prepared? What was that, what was that sorry? Are we prepared are for we the prepared? next one? Um, I think we've got work to do. I think we we need to invest in those systems. Uh, as I say, we need to invest in our health system and our science and research um, to make sure we are better prepared. Uh, you know, it, it would be better if we didn't need to have lockdowns, if we didn't need to have border closures. And that's about a joined up international response as well. So we've certainly got work to do to, to be in a better, uh, be more well prepared for the next one. 
Good on you, Michael. Kia ora. Thank you for that. That's Professor Michael Plank there. Uh, 20,000 deaths prevented by our COVID response is a slightly hard number to grasp. It's approximately the population of Ashburton or Levin or Cambridge. How would we feel if the entire population of one of those towns was wiped out? And thinking of that, um, I remember doing a bit of history in the 1918 influenza, you know, um, in Auckland, West Auckland, the Waikamiti Cemetery, there's just this huge, big monument, and there's thousands of people. They it just there were so many deaths, they couldn't identify them, they couldn't individually bury them. It's just um, this big area of grass and a monument. So still, still there. we need to yeah remember that the the influenza of 1918. At 25 past four, the panel are in National. We have Raven Can and Sally Winley on uh, this afternoon. Noon. Oh, as a healthcare worker who worked every day during the pandemic, I am so glad to hear our lockdown pro- lockdown processes saved twenty thousand lives. What I struggle with even today is the ongoing abuse towards healthcare workers. Now, yesterday we talked about grandparents who raise and care for grandchildren. There are up to 30,000 grandparents filling this role, and it can be financially and emotionally challenging. But they often get inadequate support and can be put in financial difficulty. And we had some wonderful responses about personal experiences about this issue. And with us, one of those was Mike. Kia ora, Mike. Hi, uh, Wallace. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, hi. Hi, Mike. Welcome to Friday's show. And so this is your story, Mike, as well. Yeah, we're raising our grandson. His name is Calibus. We got him when he was one and a half. And you hear stories about other families and all of that with their problems and drugs, violence, anger, blame. Well, we were one of those. And... um, as a consequence, Nan was around there one day and there was just a horrible argument going on and um, Sharon said, look, guys, if you don't cut this out now, I'm going to the cops. Well, they wouldn't listen. And within two hours, we had the baby. He was one and a half and he's never gone back. We, um, Sharon had to talk to me about it before because if, I, if I'm honest with you guys, I haven't got any children of my own and... Um, Calibus came to us and actually became um, the child or the son I never had. And we have raised him since, I can't remember now, one and a half, but now he's just turned 14. And, um, yeah, we have struggled. We also still do. But um, mm. when I have been to some of the grandparenting events that they've put on, those people are fantastic. And each time we go, there are more grandparents turning up. And um, I'm looking quietly looking at these people going, well, man, I know we're up against it, but I'm grateful for our problems because yours look a lot worse than mine, you know? Oh, kia ora, Mike. Gosh, so, mm. Mike, what effect on your life has it had raising your wonderful uh, yep. grandson? Yeah. Yep. Um, for the first three months, um, I was quite lost about it inside quietly to myself because I was afraid that I wouldn't measure up. I was afraid of the unknown. I was afraid that I wouldn't be good enough as a, a role model and a dad and a granddad and, and everything. 
But after about three months, things started to plateau a bit and I eased up a bit. And um, just having the the little guy close to me and knowing that he was just needed our, our help and raising him and everything, it, it just it took on a momentum of its own and went from there. But there are a few things, and if you know, you guys are parents yourselves, there are a few things that happen that are just um, eternal. And one day, because Sharon and I like traveling around quite a bit, so we'd put him in his little baby seat in the back and go wherever we went. And one night we came home, and it was late at night, and I picked him up out of the seat, and he stirred. And I said, it's all right, boy, just go to sleep. And he nuzzled his little face into my neck. And that was it. I was sold forever. You know, things like that happen. Gosh. Treasure. Well, you're really affecting us here, uh, Mike, with your uh, testimony. Um, Raven, you mm. want to um, – let's bring the, our other panelist, Raven, oh. in. Sure. Well, I, th- I think, yeah, that's I, that's just beautiful. Well done. And, um, oh, thank you, know, you. congratulations for, for, for doing well, that. It just sounds like a, um, you know, a lovely story of, of nurturing. Oh, it is, but I'll, I'll let you know I'm as I'm as normal and a, and inadequate and afraid and unsure of myself as you guys are. I mean, we've had some big discussions, um, Sharon and I, about about everything. We've had some massive fights. We've had everything, and we still come through this somehow. And often, uh, for myself, I wonder, I wonder if I belong. But um, I look at this kid, and um, drives me nuts. And he's a dickhead, but I just love him. And, um, <laughs> Comes oh. home and he's and fourteen, fourteen and now. Himself. Fourteen now. Yeah, he comes home and he's dancing around in, in the kitchen, watching himself in the windows. Then he thinks he's Bruce Lee and he takes it too far with me. And when he, I start chasing him, he runs away like Kung Fu Panda. So we have our moments, but it's fine. Mike, oh. I just want to mm. thank you for being part of today's show. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. You're welcome, and for all the other grandparents out there, you know, just keep going. It's not forever. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora, Mike. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, Mike there. Uh, on the back of that story yesterday, we talked about grandparents who raise and care.